Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the American Reformer Podcast. You've got with you today the executive director, Josh Abatoy, that's me, and you've got Time and Klein, our editor-in-chief. We're joined by two very special guests today um, who co-wrote an article for us a couple months back that uh, just led to some great discussion, and we're going to continue that here. Uh, but we've got with us Joe Rigney. Joe's a fellow of theology at New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho, uh, author of numerous books, which you should certainly go buy and read. And then we also have with us Glenn Moots, who's a professor of politics at Northwood University um, and uh, has written a number of books on the American founding and, and various related matters. Both of these gentlemen uh, were speakers at last year's National Conservatism Conference, um, barn burners, both of them. Um, Joe told the main conference room uh, that the conservative movement needs to uh, stick to his guns on defending traditional marriage and uh, earned a lot of acclaim in that room. It was a pretty galvanizing moment, uh, one of the best moments of the conference. But gentlemen, we're, we're grateful to both of you for joining us today. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. So Glenn and uh, Joe, uh, just to hop right into the article here, um, this was back in July, July 4th, actually, a very appropriate day for this post. Um, and it was in response to Daryl Hart, uh, now of Hillsdale. And he had written a piece in the Wall Street Journal basically attacking Doug Wilson, Stephen Wolf, and anyone, you know, they're kind of stand-ins um, for a lot of people, um, calls them basically un-American because they can't in good faith celebrate July 4th because they reject what he coins as America's liberal secular polity. And so that simply is the essence of America. And because their writings and stances don't conform to that model, that interpretation of America, therefore they are un-American. Un um, so you guys decided you should respond to this. Yeah, we Joe, did. I think I think Joe was the, the, the one who first brought up the irony of what was actually going on in Moscow on the 4th of July. Yeah, so what was – so the first thing that was just kind of – it was amusing to me that he was that, you know, um, you know, Hart's argument was that, you know, Wilson would be critical of Fourth of July festivities because I was in the process of moving to Moscow um, to take my take up my new post and was getting emails from the church about the Fourth of July parade that the church was sponsoring and which they had brought back <laughs> after it had fallen into disrepair by the liberal secular polity that runs Moscow. So there was this sort of irony of Doug can't celebrate 4th of July while his church is literally bringing back the 4th of July parade. So that was amusing and kind of kind of funny. And then that then turned into, you know, sort of some, you know, uh, text conversations about the rest of the thing, which was more about the substantive question of what happened at the founding, what didn't happen at the founding, are we still there, and uh, and what kind of polity. And that's where the, the, the rest of the article kind of emerged from there and, and, and Glenn... Glenn was great in, in pulling together a lot of those pieces. There are two things about it that really bothered me. One is I don't understand why he felt obliged to do this in the Wall Street Journal. So, you know, that's that's three million people plus who are subscribing. And he's taking, first of all, in, at a, 
at a time when Christians are, are already under fire for being unpatriotic, you know, being un-American, he decides, you know, to pick this fight in the Wall Street Journal. I, I don't understand that. Uh, I think if he had done this in his blog, does he still have a blog? Um, maybe yeah, I don't I, read it. I don't know. He used to have a blog where he would say controversial things. If he'd said it on Twitter, you know, I wouldn't have known. I don't have a Twitter account unless somebody, you know, screenshot it and put it in front of me. Um, but for some reason, he puts this in the Wall Street Journal and he does it in this, you know, this basically short form uh, essay. And so there's really nothing particularly, I don't know, insightful about it. It's just basically a hit piece on uh, Doug and Stephen. And, you know, I'm on record, uh, you know, on Stephen. I don't agree with some of the things Stephen's written and said, and I don't really follow his Twitter. I'm not, not a fan of it. And, uh, you know, Doug, I, I, you know, wouldn't agree with Doug on everything, but why in the world is a Presbyterian? Do you want to do this Presby and Presby violence in the uh, Wall Street Journal? I didn't, I didn't get that. And then the second thing was just the idea of liberal secular America, which is this whole, you know, America was conceived in 1776 and then moved forward with this kind of, you know, liberal secular project stuff. So between those two things, I thought, well, you know, something's got to something's got to be done. Yeah, I, I found it uh, interesting. I think I think this is a direct quote where he, you know, it's an accusation coming from D.G. Hart. Um, he says, you know, one of the sins they've committed is wanting to return to a pre-1776 model of governance or society, something like that. He specifically mentions John Winthrop's, uh, you know, Massachusetts Bay, which last I checked is in America. So that was strange. But um, the, you know, so he said that's the sin they're, they're committing – um, it's very strange because then he's, he's appealing to, you know, post-1776 founding. Um, but as someone like, you know, a reputable historian, this isn't like Stephen Wolf, you know, saying this as if he would not read his sources. But, you know, Gordon Wood talks about, I think in his latest book, you know, until Lincoln, when people would speak about the founders, they were, in fact, referring to John Winthrop and William Penn and these people. And so they clearly thought the colonial record was relevant for what America was and was becoming. Um, so that's a, is a strange anachronistic, you know, point he was making, but you guys mustered other sources to sort of demonstrate this as well, including, I was always pleased to see Joseph's yes. story um, included in these kinds of, so, so tell us a bit about that. So I figured all I had to do, and it wouldn't take, you know, much, much heavy lifting at all was to simply demonstrate that there was at least one idea that had some, so in the, in the in the piece, uh, he says that the problem with these guys. Now he has a brief mention of the integralists in there, but there's no point in talking about those guys. We got enough to, on our plate. But he says something in there about how they want, you know, Wolf and and uh, Wilson want to go uh, pre 1776 to Calvin's Geneva, right? Uh, pre-1776 patterns of government, such as John Calvin's Geneva or John Winthrop's Boston. So I figured all I had to do was find something that was, you know, more or less close to Calvin's Geneva and uh, Winthrop's Boston and just make a connection to something after 1776, which is Story. And of course, Story had these very popular commentaries on the Constitution, including the First Amendment. So all I had to do was take some idea of establishment, 
you know, go back before Winthrop, go into colonial New England, and then attach it to story. And essentially, I had done two things. One, I had demonstrated that there was a pre-1776 idea that was, you know, uh, relevant for the founding. And then, uh, two, I would demonstrate that this was not a liberal secular project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think one of the one of the ironies for me in reading it too was was sort of the uh, elevation of this sort of 1776 or the 1780s in the Constitutional Convention as sort of like when all of this went down, and yet within it, kind of an acknowledgement tacitly, subtly that you know sort of the full me- he says the full measure of religious freedom took a while to include Catholics, Mormons, Jews, skeptics, atheists. So it wasn't actually 1776 that did that. It took like another hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred years. Mm-hmm before those groups were sort of had the full measure. And so the founding he's talking about, it's, it's this, it's, it's, mm-hmm. this is kind of the, the base problem in a lot of these conversations is that an appeal is made to 1776 to the founding, but then the arrangement that is actually held up as a model is, you know, 1976. Um, and, mm-hmm. and as though the 1776 thing and the 1976 thing are identical and failing to reckon with the fundamental transformations that went into jurisprudence and in Supreme Court and all sorts of things in the interim that fundamentally altered the political arrangement. And that, yes, it's yes. So, yes, we're still America, but we have had these sort of um, internal non bloody aside from the Civil War, of course, but um, revolutions that have occurred by virtue of Supreme Court dictates and popular opinion. And there's there's a whole host of reasons that go into this. But um, but to then appeal. So the, the, one of the things that was that bugged me about it was the fact that, like, I think the American founding was a great instance of Protestant political philosophy applied to a particular polity. These these were Protestant political mm-hmm. principles worked out in prudential ways in a particular place, given a particular history. And then now we're being told, no, in fact, um, that older Protestantism, Calvin's Geneva and Winthrop's Boston, are there was a fundamental disjunction between them and whatever America is. And I want to say there is a fundamental disjunction between whatever America is now and those principles. But we're the I'm the one who would love to if we could recover whatever the political arrangement in 1776 was, no one's going to be happier than me. Right. Like we're and and the same would be true, I think, of Stephen uh, Wolf. I think it would be true. I know it's true of Doug. Um, that that is precisely the political arrangement, but it was a political arrangement that had blasphemy laws at the state level and um, that, you know, encouraged the Christian religion as story talks about. And so it's, it's the, that's why it matters because, because we want to appeal to um, history, to who we've been as a people in terms of our present debates about where we're going and where we ought to go. Um, it's good and right to want to say, this is who we are and who we've been. This is what the faith of our fathers. This is the country of our fathers. But that means actually getting it right. And so some of what this was, was an attempt to say, this vision of the religious settlement at the founding is is flawed um, and and manifestly so. Yeah, that's a that's a, f- a fascinating point you're, you're making. Uh, Joe and Glenn as well, in terms of, you know, this is so Hart is a historian, right? So even if he's not an expert on the the founding, you know, what's what's he write about? Like Mencken. I mean, he's written on Ben Franklin, too. So I guess he could be considered to have expertise there. But the point is, there's it's a matter of historical method of where, on the one hand, you see radical discontinuity between 
um, the Protestant settlement in America post 1776, and even just less than 100 years prior in Winthrop's Boston, right? So he sees radical discontinuity there, but he sees extreme continuity between 1776 and 1976, as he said. And that is a really bizarre way to assess the data that you would uh, presumably as a historian gather between those periods to, or, or let's do 300 years at a time or, or 200 years even, you know, what's, uh, it, it's very strange. Uh, I just don't, would, would struggle to see that narrative being painted, but it is a sort of Whiggish history he is um, operating with that one, uh, we're, we're, it's a, you know, it's always becoming what it's supposed to be, um, I guess would be how you could put it between the founding um, at the historical moment and what we are now, he seems to think everything is, is basically hunky-dory, that we have uh, moved away from these these greater restrictions, even as he denies them at the founding period. So that's just, I find that yeah, very strange. That's, that's right. And I, a time and you're the, you're the lawyer, so you might speak to uh, the people versus Ruggles, right? Uh, what James Kent <laughs> said. That. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what's interesting about this, and this is another thing that frustrates me about these conversations, is just how shallow the how shallow that the the, the, the political anthropology is in these cases. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what what is the role that religion plays in a polity, or you know, what are the what are these first principles that polities have to rely on, especially if they're going to ask people to do things like uh, swear oaths and things like that, right? Yeah, the way I think, you know, uh, one of the words that, that Glenn picked up on in particular in, in Hart's article was the word cajoled as a sort of term of derision <laughs> to describe what religious establishment was. And, I, and I'm not, you know, personally, the, the question of whether you have a tax-supported church or not is a question of political prudence in particular circumstances. It's not, I'm not dying on any hills of we must bring back the establishment. Timon maybe would die on that hill, but uh, I'm not dying on that hill. Um, and so it is a question of, of wisdom in this particular case, but to, but to act as though religious establishments were, were this kind of attempt to coerce true faith or cajole and, and sort of like this, this, um, this pejorative way of talking about it, the irony of it, given, um, what I know to be Hart's, um, uh, denominational commitment, he's a, he's a Presbyterian, is that it sounded very Baptist, like the, the notion of religious li- liberty mm-hmm. that he was offering, so sort of that any public recognition or promotion of religion is a cajoling and an attempt to coerce, is the sort of argument that Baptists t- tend to make um, in opposition to, you know, Protestant political theory. Um, and so that was kind of this irony of on the one hand, hey, let's be grateful for the founding, but you're not actually grateful for the actual founding. And then second, you're a Presbyterian making what amounts to um, Baptist arguments or a, a, a Baptist Baptist argument for religious liberty, um, meaning the state has zero role whatsoever in, the, in promoting true religion. Um, that was that was puzzling and therefore felt like it needed a response. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'll add to this that in that uh, in the Baptist Baptist, and I'll, I'll let you guys talk about uh, the Baptist Baptist <laughs> thing maybe later uh, if you want to. It's a term of art. <laughs> Let's do it. But <laughs> it, sort of on this point, um, there is this kind of historical myth that uh, once once you had Constantine and Theodosius, you lost true Christianity. Uh, this is actually addressed really well in uh, a new book called uh, The Old Faith and the New World. Um, I've got a review of it at the University Bookman um, 
through the Kirk Center. But that that book demonstrates how there was this kind of uh, myth that uh, once Christianity was established, you lost true Christianity. Well, when was true Christianity recovered? American religious liberty. Mm-hmm. And the magisterials, they just, in these histories, they just glossed over it. Now, some of this history came from church, church historians who, you know, were themselves believers, but then they also relied on, you know, people like Gibbon and, and, and Voltaire to define what true Christianity is. Right. <laughs> Well, Joe, I've got to I've got to hop in here. Um, you've uh, you've invoked uh, the Baptists um, and then the Baptist Baptists. So so you said Baptist Baptist is a term of art. Um, why don't you unpack that briefly, and then I've got some things to to say. Yeah. So obviously, I've I've been a Baptist for you know most of my life. Um, still on the fence. people are going to ask where, where are you now? I'm still on the fence, um, but precisely because I'm not a Baptist Baptist. This this discussion that the debates about the timing of baptism and infant baptism are less fraught for me, um, and and so I've had to develop terms to try to distinguish whatever it was I've been and then whatever other Baptists are. And so sometimes I would have I've called myself a magisterial Baptist um, to stress uh, I'm a Protestant. And I'm the I'm a Baptist version of Protestantism, and I would say when I've when I've used Baptist Baptist, it's it's sort of a you know I'm really Baptist, but what it what it often means for me as I've used it in passing uh, is someone who views Baptist distinctives as a third alternative over against Roman Catholicism and pro, and classic Protestantism. So rather than viewing um, Baptist identity as sort of a subset of Protestantism. It views it as really a third way alongside them. So it's not a species of Protestantism. It's a genus alongside Catholics and Protestants. And so it's really the third way. And it, and, you know, of course it's the one that got it right, which is fine. Everybody thinks that they're right. But, um, but usually it is entailed within it is a kind of rejection of the, uh, you know, um, the role of, of the state or of even society in some, some in some measure sometimes uh, in promoting Christianity because as Glenn was just saying it, you can't right to the attempt to do that with any state civil or even sometimes uh, cultural Christianity is an illegitimate use because it's not real it's just superficial that's the criticism it's superficial it's hypocritical it just produces hypocrites and therefore it's fundamentally flawed and we ought to reject it wholesale. And so that's typically what I've meant by Baptist Baptist. So the state has zero role in um, promoting the worship of God um, in enforcing the first commandment. Blasphemy laws are not simply um, wrong because of prudential reasons, which I think that you could make a case for in certain polities, blasphemy laws being a bad idea um, because they would simply provoke irreligion rather than um, promote true religion. But, but that's a prudence question. Um, this is a rejection of the, the principle of blasphemy laws. You can't have them at all because to do so is to violate sort of the nature of the Christian religion as, itself. And it's that sort of thing that I typically have in mind when I talk about Baptist yeah. Baptist. And there are people, I mean, I, I have good friends who hold that, that position and we have rousing good arguments about, about those sort of things. Uh, but that's, that's what I have in mind. And maybe the platonic ideal of that is like, Russell Moore's essay from what six years back or so, where he celebrated the demise of Mayberry, Correct. right? Yep, exactly. Like, like, you know the um, it, and it's almost like sort of this Kantian viewpoint where like we we actually we almost want to affirmatively um, 
decrease any incentive to become a Christian. Like we don't want there to be any social pressure to go to church. Right. Like you have to do it out of this pure volitional, you know, act. Like you you can't do so because society wants you to. And and I think the obvious problem with that approach, I think, is that God uses means, right? And so it doesn't, maybe there could be a whole range of motives that get you to go to church on Sunday morning. But once you're, once you're uh, sitting in the pew, you hear God's word, and God's word is um, effective, right? Uh, and so, so, so there's there's obviously at those extremes, there's there's a, a many possible critiques. Um, I, I think that one thing we probably should should drill down on a little bit is the concept of religious liberty and how it gets used. Um, you know, I think in uh, in Hart's piece. He, he talks about re- religious liberty not really coming to full flowering until uh, until the 20th century in some ways, it, it, which I take to mean that we don't have full religious liberty until we have a secular polity and a secular public square. Now, that that's sort of a maximalist reading of religious liberty. I think it matches the some of the recent Baptist work, especially Russell Moore's. Um, and, and others, other um, theorists who've, in, in some ways, have taken the Baptist tradition and married it with, I think, Rawlsian political theory. Um, so, so sort of a very aggressive um, secularism, and they would say that's actually supported by the Baptist tradition. Um, but, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a whole range of, you know, what religious liberty can mean. And, and even in a situation where you say that, you know, um, you know, even if even in a case where the state has a sort of establishment of sorts, there could be a more constrained religious liberty um, of a kind, right? The kind of it's toleration. Um, you know, even if even if not all religions are treated equally, right? Well, yeah. So I sorry, Joe. I'll, I'll just add one thing there, which is uh, in this celebration of modern religious liberty, it also relies on a certain kind of incorporation. Uh, which right. which destroys federalism, and so in in celebrating this particular kind of religious liberty, uh, if we can call it that, I'm not even sure that it is right, because then you have football coaches going to the Supreme Court to beg to say prayers at halftime or whatever. But it, uh, you're, you're celebrating the demise of federalism, which is, which is so mm-hmm. instrumental to so many questions in the American founding. So in celebrating, right. you know, like I said. Uh, um, you know, in the piece, 1946, as a kind of uh, uh, 1776, or as you know, Joe said, you know, not maybe 1976. Uh, what you're doing is is you're not celebrating the founding because you actually had federalism in the founding, and the states, the uh, Bill of Rights was understood to apply to the federal government, and the states had their own uh, protections and so on. So the whole thing strikes me as particularly un-American. Well, and, and yeah, that's and to, to really put a fine point on that, like what's sort of going on there is itself a limitation on a type of of uh, religious liberty, right? I mean, what if you're what if you're the member of a tradition? Um, I think the RPCNA, for instance, actually yes. calls for in their in their con- constituating documents that that there be an, a Christian establishment, and so. The, the Baptists are actually calling on this strong federal government to step down to the state level and squash what could theoretically be like a religious expression of a particular branch of Christianity at the state level. That's right. And, and, and this is, uh, I think, you know, Brad Littlejohn has made, has been really helpful to me in thinking about the religious liberty because he, 
he, he makes sure that we have to think about not only the sort of the religious liberty of individuals, which is one piece, but also the religious liberty of groups. Like can, can groups make decisions for themselves and how they want to operate? Um, can, can you have that and it be respected um, and not simply say, well, they, whatever, they, if, if any individual there um, has a different view, they trump everybody else, um, which is sometimes how it can it can come comes through right. right you get the that one person who then governs the entire thing simply because religious liberty is taken to be in this in this absolute unrestricted way um, as opposed to you know sort of the classic protestant notion which is um the internal relation to god is uncoercible it's just impo- it's, it's just you can't do it you can't coerce saving faith and therefore the attempt to try which say sometimes the the roman catholics did um is is out of court at the beginning and so you you can't do it but when it comes to behavior, especially public behavior, um, and it comes to um, social order, there is a role for compulsion, right? So you, you can use compulsion to restrict or to promote certain activities um, insofar as it's good for the, the, the group as a whole. And this is where all of the, the toleration question becomes the live one, is how much um, error, how much sin can a polity tolerate before the thing crumbles? And, and prudence is the navigation of that question, right? So we want to pursue the good. We want, the, we want to do the individual level. We want to do it at the corporate level. So churches, families, uh, state, society, we want to pursue ultimate good. Um, and, and then how much, but we also don't want to, but to, you could, there's a way to do that that would just be terrible because we live in a fallen world. So toleration is trying to navigate that question. But what it doesn't do is elevate uh, the modern notion of re- autonomous religious liberty, freedom to believe whatever you want. And then as soon as you move it into that realm of, and practice whatever you want, it becomes really difficult to then define like, well, why is child sacrifice wrong? If that's part of the, if, if, if someone makes abortion a part of their religion, do we now have to respect it? And, and uh, I know that most, you know, to use my term, Baptist Baptists would say absolutely not because they're harming, harming someone. But to actually give principled and co- consistent reasons for opposing that sort of bloody sacrament um, is the task of political philosophy. We, we want to be we want to have a consistent political <laughs> philosophy when we address those questions. Yeah, well, it seems to- I got to ju- jump in here, Timon, really quickly. I think yeah. one one pragmatic consideration that we need to get on the table is um, the state of our society in 2023 and the fact that, um, at least in lawfare, making these sort of rights expansionist arguments under the First Amendment, are they, they may be very pragmatically good, even if all four of us may like have principial objections. So, for example, I mean, ever since Obergefell happened, and really like far before that, but we've got big organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom who are doing like very meaningful good work protecting Christians, trying to carve out some liberties for Christians under what is overall like a relatively hostile legal regime. I mean, Obergefell and these other things sort of enshrined um, expressive individualism or, or something like that as an alternative religion, right? And so what's going on right now is like tactically in the legal conservative movement, we're, we're fighting for carve outs and protections and that requires us to sound like liberals from the 1960s. It, it requires us to have these really expansionist readings of the Bill of Rights, um, you know, make expansive non-establishment arguments. Um, and I, I think you even see it with someone like like David French um, 
in some ways, his evolution isn't all that surprising. His whole career was as a religious liberty litigator, and he was making arguments in court that are actually only kind of rationally defensible if you're sort of a fully orbed pluralist who favors a secular public square. I want to get that on the table. It's just something we need to grapple with, I think, as we go forward. Yeah, can I, you know, can I say, I have a thought about this. I was actually thinking about this just today. And it's the danger of that kind of approach, I think, is at least twofold. And I get it, I get it's reality. I don't have an answer for this because um, I think it is the problem, um, is, is given the polity that we have, given the system that we have and whatnot, how do we work within it? Um, but the pragmatic side of that, which, you know, a, you know, sounding like a 1960s liberal in order to make our arguments is a, um, is a rear guard action as we're retreating. That's, that's what that thing is. And the danger of it is that people will adopt the pragmatically chosen rationale as the new principle, which is, and then what that then does is if you do that, then you wind up with a bunch of Christians who've adopted that 1960s post-war consensus ideal as the bibli- and, and baptized it as the biblical principle. And therefore, they be, you have other Christians who are like the big barrier to actually moving the ball forward because they're, they're, that principle is opposed to the older Protestant biblical principle that the state should recognize the good. And so here's the illustration of this that I've, I've this is the collision that will come is right now Christians are wanting to argue um, that parents, for, for parental rights, parents have the right to raise their kids as they want, to raise their kids in the Christian faith. I can give my kids a Christian education. And there's lots of lots writing on the question of parental rights. And I want to say yes and amen. But then you, you move over, you know, you move down the street, and all of a sudden you're going to get the same argument being made by the mom who wants to trans her kids, right? Parental rights. And... And the um, the defect in that 1960s consensus, that procedural consensus, is that it can't distinguish between those two situations because it has no notion of an overarching good toward which we must conform. And so, so then you have so um, you know I saw on Twitter the other day someone criticizing indoctrination is bad, and if you're going to indoctrinate your kid into the Christian faith and teach them to believe in hell, your kid should be taken from you. And so Christians will go, well, we don't want that, so let's really shore up parental rights. But in doing so, do we also then shore up the right of parents to castrate their children because they've been indoctrinated? They've been So indoctrination and grooming, there's the two terms, right? We're accused of indoctrination. We accuse them of grooming. Is there any way to adjudicate that? And the answer, according to the older tradition, is absolutely. One of them is good and one of them is evil. And, mm-hmm. and that's the thing that matters. But in a procedural consensus, if the principle is, if it's religious, we have to allow it, then I don't see a principled. Re- we're we're going to run into that buzzsaw. And so that's the danger, I think, of taking the pragmatic approach and sort of seeding the ground of the of the other principle um, in the short term. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree, Joe. I mean, I, I think, though, that, um, you know, given the stake of some of our of our fights right now that are going on, um, I think we have to have some tactical flexibility about what we do in various arenas. So like, you know, if, if, um, if we're going to have a a conservative legal movement, that's, you know, pushing um, religious liberty arguments, uh, you know, in one sphere, I think that, you know, those of us who are interested in more substantive visions of justice need to have some toleration for the tactical flexibility that those organizations need to do their work. Absolutely. Um, but at the same time, we need to increasingly recognize, I think, the the insufficiency of 
I mean, the whole the whole concept of lawfare and all of this is is this idea that you know success lies in fighting out in these um, sort of neutral procedural fights. And so while they do that on their front, we need to be minding a lot of other fronts um, and and also not outsourcing our political philosophy um, to people who are entirely conditioned by the litigation. Right. I agree with that. 100%. Yeah. I, I think, I think what Joe's hitting on is, is really essential, which is we've taken something which Protestants did out of prudence because we believe the state was a good and it was not a good worth losing over different flavors of religious establishment. Um, and we've turned that, that point of prudence into a principle and the principle has become detached from any serious conversation about what the flavors of establishment are and what actually constitutes human flourishing. Well, and a couple to bring this back to the cajoled language from DG Hart. I mean, this is where he, if he hadn't already, he certainly exposed himself as a, as a complete and utter liberal in his, in his paradigm, um, because it seems a rather expansive definition of cajoled. He's probably conjuring up to scare people. Um, I would say, you know, the general idea of religious liberty or really toleration at the at the founding works when you have a sufficient level of homogeneity, um, even at the federal level. I mean, John Jay may have been pleading a little too much when he when he was trying to paint this really unified picture. But uh, certainly by today's standards, you'd have massive homogeneity. And then at the state levels, you had it even more so and even more so at the township. So when you have these this homogeneity. Um, social stigma is able to operate sufficiently well to um, preclude the need for certain legal enforcement, right? It just works. But of course, DG Hart is, is probably against this kind of social stigma too, as a sort of libertine. Um, but once you rise to the level where you no longer, um, you know, there's many, many causal factors. One of them would be incorporation, though, as Glenn talked about, um, where you then have a legal avenue to actually start chipping away at some of the strong social stigma um, and to and of course you diversify society at a rapid rate. Um, it does become a, a strange pickle under our constitutional order as now adjusted to how you can address this. And I would I would totally agree with what Joe. I mean, Josh's point is well taken. That's just the reality on the ground. And you got to win. You know, particular cases. You know, Jack Phillips needs to to win so he doesn't lose his business, right? So you kind of do whatever you need to do. At the same time, I would say the way to navigate this is. When places like ADF, whatever, are making these arguments, they need to simply make sure that on the back end, they're not cutting the legs out from um, the rest of us and trying to make normative moral arguments for, let's say, legislation. Mm -hmm. So if you defend the, the guy from, you know, he gets to pray on the field because it's religious liberty, right? Um, we need to make sure that it doesn't preclude us from then passing a law in some possible future where only Christians pray on the field. Or something like that, right? Right. So, if you, but if you set up this um, in ever snowballing um, post incorporation uh, sort of uh, you know precedent, that then would be really tough to unravel. It does it does preclude certain arrangements that we might all aspire to um, at, at, at some degree, right? And I think if 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 we, in that hypothetical future, if you get to the point where your only Christians can pray, or you know, if it's not praying pray in the field, but if you went back to um, Congress is going to be open with a prayer to the living God, the Christian God, not right. to Allah or, you know, whatever Hindu gods are being sort of the, the parade of polytheism that runs through that place. Um, if, if we were able to get there, 
the opposition, the danger is the opposition will come most strenuously from other Christians who have been indoctrinated uh, into a vision of religious liberty that is far more expansive. And therefore, we're, you're stuck between two stools. It's either you're ceding the field to the secularists who have no qualms about running all the way down the field um, as far as you will give them. Whatever, you know, we, we're seeing right now, how evil will they, will they go in the name of liberty? Right. And it's like they will castrate their children. They'll murder. They'll murder infant, infant babies. They'll um, exterminate the elderly. They will go as far as the devil will if you give them that mm-hmm. runway. So what do you need to restrain them? Well, one of the things that God has given us to restrain is law, enforced law. And therefore, if if we're making this expansive argument for religious liberty on even if it's on pragmatic grounds, because we need to, we need some W's, we need to put some points on the board for Jack Phillips. Um, if we're not on the back end doing really good work in catechizing on social order, catechizing on the, mm-hmm. on the Christian, Protestant, Reformed, whatever, you, whatever words you want to use, um, biblical um, vision of what's principle and what's prudence. How do we think about these things? If you don't develop a Christian political philosophy that has room for all of the debates, like that, that leaves room for the debates on the, on the application, but that gets the principles right, then you're going to wind up, you know, um, it's a Pyrrhic victory. Yay, we, you know, you mm-hmm. saved Jack, Jack Phillips for a minute, but then in the end, you discipled everybody into 1960s liberalism, which just gets rolled by aggressive secularism. There's, it does, it's unsustainable. Mm-hmm. It, it will not stay put. Um, especially, and and this, is the, um, this is where the Baptist thing does come into play. Like I, I've, you know, Jonathan Lehman's a really good friend of mine. I, I appreciate him, and I appreciate him partly because he, he really wants to make arguments and make biblical arguments for it. So I, I appreciate him. But, but when he makes the argument that, you know, the public square is a battlefield of the gods, and it seems as though on his view, it's the Christian's job to make sure that nobody wins. <laughs> like the, 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 the role of the Christian <laughs> is not to win the battlefield of the gods, but to make sure that nobody wins and, and to start with making sure the Christians don't win. Christians, if you could persuade the population to adopt the Apostles' Creed and the Constitution, to have biblical laws, to have all of these things, um, we should absolutely not do that because we need to preserve the battlefield. Our job is to preserve the battlefield, not win the war at least at the political level. I know Jonathan absolutely believes in win the war at the, for hearts and minds, preach the gospel. He's going to do all of that. But, but the, the, the state battle, the public square battle, needs to perpetually remain a battle. And at that point, then, you're just letting the, the other guys are going to win. Well, yeah. we, we've, we've now had the Jonathan Lehman uh, cameo. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right, Joe. And that, and that's, it's, it's entirely maddening. And I think, I think, you know, as I, as I'm listening to you guys, you know, talking about the, you know, the prayer in the Senate, I'm thinking, well, this is the part that's going to get excerpted uh, because, uh, you know, these guys sat down and talked about, you know, how we should make sure that only Christians are able to to pray at halftime. Look, that is so far from any, you know, kind of like, uh, uh, possible realm of policy that it's purely a thought experiment. But the problem is the conversation that a lot of Christians want to have, you know, to Joe's point is that, you know, if you, if you asked them, look, uh, let's say for example, that you could have Christians routinely praying in the Senate as was the case, right. For a long time. Um, 
And I mean, sort of, you know, the overwhelming majority, in other words, there wasn't this effort to, you know, sort of rotate in a way disproportionate to population or whatever. Um, you know, wouldn't you want the invocation, if you could get it, being a Christian invocation, wouldn't that be better? And uh, after all, what's all this talk about, you know, every inch being mine and so on? And uh, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how many people would say, yeah, that w- that would be an ideal you know, if we could get it. Never mind the law. Just think of it as a good, you know, relative right. to other supposed goods, which is to say pluralism. And if I really believe that Christianity is for my neighbor's good, then whether I get it through civil society or whether I get it through some kind of prudent law, don't I want the good for my neighbor? Or do I believe that the that the neighbor is better off with 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 pluralism, or do I believe that the state is, like Joe said, maintaining the battlefield, but at no point winning on it? Well, and this would be. I mean, I mean, I think this is that's exactly right. And Joe's raising the question of inevitably at some point you have to answer the good versus evil question. And the you know our Baptist friends like like Lehman seem to think there's a possible state of affairs where that judgment call never has to be made. So it's, it's, it's totally unrealistic. They'll, you know, call people like me a utopian. Um, but in fact, they're utopian because they seem to think there's a situation in which um, everything remains totally neutral. Of course, there is no moral establishment that governs um, either through soft or hard power. And they also refuse to recognize the inevitable pedagogical effect of any law, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is the primary effect of Obergefell. You don't see a ton of, you know, enforcement. You're not putting people in jail over mm-hmm. it or something. Um, well, maybe some people, maybe some <laughs> people. David, yeah. Um, yeah, some people did. But um, in general, what it did is it catechized the country in relatively short order um, to now where that's not even a debate anymore. You know, conservatives don't talk about the merits of gay marriage anymore. That's what we're way past it in the revolution now. Um, so the, the effect of the law and the fact that law does actually um, in not only instruct the mind, but it, um, and not only constrains your, your action, but it does in some ways form your will, we would hope. So you don't just steal because you're going to go to jail, but you steal because you're learning that it's wrong. Right. Right. And the law is teaching you that. And so that's just inevitable. So the question at the end, at some point when the rubber meets the road has to be, do we want good laws and do we want good instruction and do we want good social mores? And there are certain ways to get those. And the left is very understands this very well. And we pretend that it doesn't exist. I, can, I, can I just say, I think that the in some ways we've got so much work to do, but in some ways the wind is at our backs. I, I think the last five to 10 years have totally destroyed the myth of the secular public square. Um, I I think that everybody on the right side of the aisle is perceiving that um, neutrality is giving way to some sort of emerging new religious order. We don't know exactly what to call it or what it is, but it's something that's foreign. It's contrary to human nature in very meaningful ways. And you know, we've got that wind at our backs, but again, so much work to do. I mean, our, we're, we're talking of, you know, in incredible depth about theories here, but probably the first thing we need to go do is convince normal Republicans uh, that, you know, the, the popular phrase, you can't legislate morality is bunk. Like that's, that's the kind of thing that we need to actually be spending time on. I think that's, I think that's right. I think there's a, that, that there's a catechism question in terms of churches and, Christian schools and things that comes into play. And the reason that the hypotheticals 
you know, matter is because they're the way that we distinguish what's principle and what's prudence. Because I think that's a, that's when I've watched these the, the debates over Christian nationalism play out, um, how quickly they get bogged down on particulars. You know, are you are you trying to bring back blasphemy mm-hmm. laws? And it's like, no, I'm I'm like that's not the first order of business. That's I mean, mm-hmm. the question is whether or not the state can promote true religion and therefore suppress false religion. Mm-hmm. That's the principle. How we do it is a question of prudence. But even but, but and so the hypotheticals of can't could you do this? Is this permissible? Is that not permissible? Is one that's trying to identify what are the principles that can't change and that we need to the, which hills do we need to die on for that reason and which are the prudence battles where you can you can have different Christians making different strategic judgments about whether this is wise in this setting or not. So I think that the idealized questions actually matter a lot because they're what you're operating from. And what what's being revealed in a lot of our debates is how, A, how little people have had to think about this because we've lived in Christendom. So much of our political philosophy was formed in Christendom conditions, and therefore we just tacitly relied on them and thought everything was procedure and everything was prudence and everything we're niggling at the edges. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we're in like, we are in a battle of the gods. It is a massive... Um, metaphysical, transcendent, anthropological, theological battle. And we're like, well, how do we do it here? What, what does it mean here? And so you've got to go back to first principles. And the other, the other, the other practical thing here that I think is really helpful that I found to be really helpful is when it comes to the questions of political philosophy and, and establishing those principles, one of the best ways to reveal things, what you really think is anytime someone is talking about what the state can or can't do or what society can or can't do, you should just substitute the family for the word state and see what happens. Because oftentimes what you have is people who will say, well, you, you can't um, make someone do that or forbid someone from doing that because to do so is to violate their integrity as, a, as an image bearer of God or something like that. And then you say, okay, if you adopted that principle for reals, would it work in your parenting? And if it wouldn't work, then it's probably not a good principle. But this, right? this, is, so, the, this is the part so where, where Lehman jumps in and says, but, but, but Joe, but Joe, <laughs> the state is not the family. Right. I, yeah, well, um, but it, what it is, oh, but, the, but, the commonality, the commonality <laughs> is it's an earthly authority, right? It's, an, it's a temporal earthly authority um, that cannot uh, in any way, um, it can't, you, the, the, when I'm disciplining my kids, I have no illusions that I am going to create the new birth in their heart. I can't cause regeneration by snapping my fingers or giving them a spanking. So I know the limitations of my power, and yet I discipline them anyway. So the commonality is the use of earthly power in order to do what Timon was saying about it. My laws in my home are meant to shape the family culture. Re- enforcing those laws reinforces what's good and what's evil. There's a pedagogical function. There's a restraining function. All of the things are operative in my little society. And so if the principles I adopt in the public square would absolutely be absurd in my home, it probably is a good indication that I've I've got a a, a misguided principle and I need to rethink it and develop principle. What, so, and then I would go the other way and say, how do you discipline in your home? How, how does your temporal power relate to what you hope God is going to do in your kids? What's the relation there? And then develop some, some thoughts there and then bring them over and say, do those principles still work making necessary adjustments? Do they still work in civil society? And I think oftentimes this, I think is part yeah. of the genius of Protestantism is precisely that. Yeah, it does. And, and Joe, you great. can you can you can get at that that principle that you enunciated of like you know does the law sort of overrun the conscience of the individual in a way that insults Imago Dei? 
you can go to the family. That's one way to do it. The other way to, to, to answer that objection is to point out that, that that cannot be a limitless principle. And even the people who say it, of course they limit it, right? I mean, this is why you know you can't do child sacrifice, right? Right. But w- what they do is they actually oftentimes, and I, I think um, it's it's Van Drunen that does this quite a bit, but but they, they limit the expansiveness of that principle by saying um, it's bounded, you know, it's bounded by physical harm. So basically, they're they're then like bringing in uh, like Millsian principles on the back end to limit this otherwise totally all encompassing right. religious liberty claim. But if you only if you only grant that um, physical harm is a limiter on that principle, you're you're you are privileging. Um, you're basically saying that moral harm is is fake like it's not it's not rationally ascertainable it's not something that you can expect a society to recognize but physical harm is real and objective and you know as we've all seen the problem there is that well when you're just totally dealing in the realm of physical harm um you know then then you can um, you know you can easily run off and get some experts to come up with some studies that say a whole lot of things constitute physical harm right well, I think I think this is there's actually somewhat of an opening for this. I mean, it's it's we're going to have to use absurd analogies, uh, but this is where the opening is. Is you know, with the trans stuff and these sorts of things, I mean, it has opened the door to this at least psychologized harm yep. that is very now prevalent and recognized in society. And so, I think you're already we could say, um, you know, if you're trying to lead people this way, and I agree, um, you know, anthropology and then domestic society or econ- economy is not only the appropriate appropriate place to start because it's what the reformers also would do in their political thought often, um, but because it is inherently persuasive uh, to people because it touches on something they experience. So if you have this expanded view of harm, we actually could run with the harm principle and say, look, if man is body and soul, that's his nature, then any harm to the human um, has to be considered by that who has care of the community and is supposed to prevent harm. So, you know, now what do you do? Right. Uh, let's expand that. And and the secular liberals um, certainly recognize a sort of invisible harm that is immaterial, but somehow damaging psychologically. What if we use biblical categories and realize that it's the body and the soul that we're supposed to care about? And now we're at uh, moral harms. You know, so I think there may be a way to, to work this right. in, in and that way. Not, not only did the reformers believe this, everybody believed this. I mean, I just finished the Gorgias yeah. with, with my students and we're going into mm. the Republic. I mean, everybody... Everybody, I mean, nobody really conceived of human beings in a polity as some kind of, you know, dualistic, uh, you know, body versus soul, and the harm principle was confined to the body. And, you know, we had yeah. we had kind of a nice run with that in America for, I don't know, how many decades. And that's now jumped the shark. So to your point, when <laughs> we're talking about uh, the way in which catechesis is going on everywhere – uh, in these new ideologies and how all of these new harms are being defined. And the, the, your use of the term psychological is appropriate because, right, this is the term that the Greeks had for the soul, right? We're really talking mm-hmm. about soul harm. And uh, like you mm-hmm. said, Christians were talking about this forever, and uh, so did so many others before them. And it's strange that, you know, we have people in our tribe who are still living in some kind of very short-lived 
uh, flat anthropology where the only concern we have is, you know, harm to the body or harm to, harm to property. And uh, I think part of this, to uh, Josh's point earlier, you know, you can't legislate morality. I think about how, um, you know, so much of this is really bound up with a libertarian view of magistracy and just having such an incredibly low view of magistracy, which really is not consistent, uh, again, back to uh, the point I was making earlier, it's not consistent with anyone else's view of magistracy, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And and maybe maybe this is where, this is where the, the trans thing, or even if you don't if you don't want to go all the way to the trans thing, but to the to just pornography in general, right? So the mm-hmm. the porn epidemic mm-hmm. provides an opportunity because there's no, um, in principle, there's no physical harm being done by pornographers, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and so can the, does, can the state restrict it on sort of these expansive religious liberty principles? Because it's not causing physical harm. And so if you grant that it can, then you've just granted that certain forms of quote unquote speech, because that's where it falls, right? That's where it falls in our societies. This is a form of speech and therefore it's protected. A certain form of speech could be restricted. Why? Because it's harmful. It's harmful to individuals. It's harmful to the family. It's harmful to these institutions. It's harmful to the social order. There's harm being done. It's not physical harm. Um, it's some other kind of harm. And you've just granted, now you've granted the principle that we can think beyond the body and we can think about Mm -hmm. the psyche. Um, and the same thing would be true of the trans thing. Um, if someone, um, if you wanted to establish a school that its sole purpose was to induct children or one of its main purposes was to induct children into gender ideology with the goal that at the end they would castrate themselves. So, there you're, the hypothetical is you're not actually doing the castration. You're just t- giving them all of the psychological categories, the theological, anthropological categories in order to do it on their own. Um, would you want to restrict that sort of thing? Would you want to say, no, you don't get to have that kind of school, right? That kind of school is out. Well, once you've done that, you've again restricted speech. You're saying there are certain things that you may not say or teach to children here. Now you've, now you've established that principle. Now you can see where does that principle go from, from there? Yeah, we could just do like Plato and just say, you know, censor all the artists since that's where this performative <laughs> speech would come out. But the simplest solution is always best. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think those are all good, good insights into how to move the ball down the field a little bit with people in a persuasive way. Since, you know, as Glenn rightly said, um, as the resident boomer here, we're we're a long way off from the ideal that, you know, even if it were to come to fruition, none of us would live to see it. And these thought exercises are really good for exposing the weaknesses, I think, in, in general evangelical assumptions, which is where we ended up kind of landing. And I think if you begin with these incremental steps um, in our thought or in predominant thought, um, it, it could yield, uh, you know, good results faster than maybe many of us can predict. Um and one one good strategy would be to not keep calling America secular in the pages of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I I, I just uh, uh, saw you know this assembly bill. What is it, nine five seven in uh, California? Yeah. Apparently, one of the state reps from Santa Clarita has told Christians to leave the state because mm-hmm. uh, not only does this have to do with parental rights and children, but this could wind up in the middle of a divorce proceeding. Yep. So, yes, right. uh, yes. again, back to the family and back to the polity, we're, we're now getting we're, you know, we're, not, we're now getting into a kind of pluralism that is destroying the most fundamental political institutions. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. that's it, not good news. It, 
our constitutional system has trouble with these sorts of um, questions that can't be answered by liberalism, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the Civil War. Um, and that is, in some respects, that's the question of abortion and then also um, parental rights, uh, the transition of children, maybe increasing movement on the around the age of consent and, and related matters. But um, – in the in the transgender cases, especially, I mean, we're 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 on the cusp of having fights about extradition, um, which we really haven't had since the Civil mm-hmm. War, and and I, it's very telling. I mean, it's it's like indicative of a case where the ways of life in different states, as reflected in their law, are so distinct that the states don't want to they they really don't want to honor each other's uh, findings right they they're actively like working to undermine and oppose the way of life in the other state um so you know this is just a this is more of a reality than a principial observation but we you know i think we need to be working also with with christians to have a realistic sense of the political situation in the country today yeah yeah i, I think yeah, I think that's right. And what's interesting too about the trans issue is, I think, I think it, there's a fairly broad consensus. And I don't know, maybe I should have seen this coming. I remember Chris Benicky wrote a a piece. I forgot where where it was, but uh, you know, Chris uh, Chris is a you know real first class uh, historian of early America and religious liberty and things like that. And and Chris wrote an essay that the the uh, sports stadiums were the new cathedrals. And so maybe maybe he uh, was kind of seeing ahead that uh, um, you know where where is a lot of consensus of uh, men competing in women's sports. <laughs> Oddly enough, right? It's it's some some mom and dad's concern about a sports scholarship that may that that continues to make it mm-hmm. to, continues to keep this issue in the public eye, lest it fade away, and so. You know, we should be encouraged by a certain certain level of common sense about, you know, restrooms and sports of all things that, that is still keeping this front and center. And and I think largely the contest is driven by self-interest, but nevertheless, the contest is still there. And so it's an opportunity to keep pressing, you know, on these matters in a way that would have been, you know, diff- much more difficult, say, 10 years ago. Yeah, that's an interesting insight, Glenn, um, as to why this one, you know, has has I don't know sparked has sparked a bit of angst in a way that, that prior progressions in the revolution did not. Um, that's that's very that it touches on sports. That's interesting. Um, one, I guess, the other one would just be children. I think once it, I mean, you, you even have some what we'd call classical liberal, you know, gay advocates that will say, you know, the 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 Rubicon was kind of the children thing that seems to, to strike them in a certain way. And I think it does most people also, but what then needs to happen is to um, figure out why you, you know, why you feel that way, but also the moral principle that would, that would preclude these things, even if it didn't have to do with children. Um, but that's, that's also what's coming to, to a head with these custody battles and, and cases for parental rights you're talking about. It all has to do with this, the fundamental familial unit. And maybe Christians should realize that if they, they didn't defend the basis and genesis of that unit years ago um, that these, these problems were eminently foreseeable in certain ways. 
Um, so again, we need to get our anthropology and uh, domestic life down in a theological, theoretical way so that we can engage, you know, political theory better. And I think that's a, a gap that, that Joe was, was highlighting there in most evangelical thought. Well, Glenn, we were go- I, I had promised we were going to talk about Roger Williams and establishment, but we're coming up on the hour here, so we will have to uh, leave that for a very special edition of the podcast. <laughs> um, I will just point out one of my favorite things about Roger Williams is, you know, when you talk about the stuff we're talking about, most people will say, oh, well, you know, Christendom failed and, you know, look at all these bad repercussions you'd have. And I'd just say, go check out Roger Williams's. uh you know, colony, especially at the end of his life when he realized, whoops, I don't know how to deal with the Quakers now. And they're kind of nuts. So anyway, not everything worked out well for Roger Williams either. Uh, but we'll leave that for another day. Um, just want to thank Glenn and Joe for coming on to talk about their their article and everything else we got into. Uh, Josh, any parting thoughts here before we let these guys go? No, thank you, gentlemen. And uh, Timon, you know, if uh, in the ensuing discourse, uh, if Daryl Hart wants to join us, he'd be more than welcome to. Uh, would love to uh, have it out with him if he wants to come on and defend uh, defend his stance. Uh, and uh, that would be a blast. So, absolutely, gentlemen, thank you absolutely. so much. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. All right. Uh, thank you to our audience for listening today. Um, as a reminder, American Reformer, uh, we're on the internet at AmericanReformer.org. Uh, sign up for our emails. Uh, give us a read. You can find us on Twitter at AmReformer. Uh, just at AmReformer. Um, this podcast is available on iTunes, on Spotify, on Podbean, and other purveyors of fine podcasts. Uh, leave us a review. Subscribe. All of that helps us extend our reach. Thank you so much, and God bless. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer.org.